You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a PhD holding historian, a professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that makes legit, seriously researched American history come to life through entertaining stories. Join me for a chronological telling of the United States story, from the revolution to fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way from 1776 to the early 20th century. Listen to History That Doesn't Suck on Spotify. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 178, Massacre at Hancock's Bridge. For the last couple of weeks, I stepped away from General Washington's Continentals at Valley Forge and General Howe's regulars in Philadelphia to talk about naval operations and the establishment of Vermont. This week, I want to focus on some of the fighting that still took place around Philadelphia as the two armies sought ways to go after each other over the course of the winter. Of course, food was key to both armies the British in Philadelphia needed to supply their thousands of soldiers with all the necessities. They could not send out smaller foraging parties out of the city without being attacked. Howe had sent out a large army to go out into the Darby area of Pennsylvania shortly after capturing Philadelphia. That had provided most of the winter supplies for the army, but by early 1778, supplies were running tight the army had to reduce food rations to its soldiers, resulting in the men going hungry. The Continentals, similarly, were in desperate need of food, clothing, and just about everything else. They had better access to farmlands around them. However, the locals were in no mood to give away their crops and did not want to accept the increasingly worthless paper money being offered. Congress had suggested that Washington simply confiscate what he needed, but Washington was concerned that doing so would turn the locals against the army and encourage them to support the British. Out of desperation, Washington eventually tasked General Nathaniel Green to scavenge the area to the south of Valley Forge, seizing whatever he could. But by that time, there was little that the army could find. As a result, the Continentals also suffered from cold and hunger at Valley Forge. In February, Washington tasked General Anthony Wayne to take an army across the Delaware River into southern New Jersey to round up cattle there and bring them back to Valley Forge for the army. The area along the eastern shore of the Delaware River near Philadelphia was largely settled by Quakers. These locals tended to have Tory sympathies and did not seem to mind trading with the British. Washington instructed Wayne to seize what he could, What the army could not carry, it should destroy in order to deny it to the enemy. Wayne, as you may recall, had been the American commander at the Paoli Massacre, something I discussed back in episode 160. This new mission was an opportunity to vindicate himself after that loss. Wayne would lead a force of nearly 300 Continentals across the Delaware River into Salem County, New Jersey. Making such a crossing would not be easy. Since Philadelphia was between Valley Forge and New Jersey, Wayne's army would have to find its way around the British-occupied city 
in order to reach his goal. In addition, the Delaware was a large river that could not be forded anywhere. Wayne would need boats for the crossing. To assist with the raid, Wayne worked with Captain John Barry. As you may recall, Barry had gotten into a heated argument with Francis Hopkinson, a member of the Navy Board and delegate to the Continental Congress. Shortly after the British had captured Philadelphia, Hopkinson demanded that Captain Barry sink his Continental Navy ships, which were still upriver from the city, in order to prevent the enemy from capturing them. Hopkinson had done this in a rather insulting and peremptory way, to which Barry took great offense. Following that argument in late 1777, Hopkinson brought a complaint to Congress and the Maritime Committee as a military officer's challenge to civilian rule. Now, this was something that made Congress rather paranoid and which it took quite seriously. It considered a motion to dismiss Captain Barry from service. The vote was recorded as a tie, meaning that no action would be taken. So Barry had been one vote away from becoming the disgraced former Captain Barry. With that matter behind him, though, the Maritime Committee instructed Barry to provide assistance with the New Jersey raid. Barry took two barges still upriver from Philadelphia down past the city for use in this mission. His men rowed with muffled oars past the British fleet docked at Philadelphia. At one point, a British sentry thought he heard something and fired into the darkness at the barges while they rowed past at night. The men stayed silent for a few minutes, then continued on their way. By dawn, they were south of Philadelphia, but not south of British-occupied territory. The barges took cover in one of the small tributaries into the Delaware and hid from the British Navy during the daylight hours. After dark, they resumed rowing past Chester and Marcus Hook, finally arriving in Wilmington, Delaware, where General Smallwood's Continentals controlled the area. On February 19th, Barry used the barges to ferry Wayne's men across the river to Salem. Over the next four days, the Continentals turned cattle rustlers, rounded up about 500 head of cattle and wagons full of hay to feed them. The problem now was getting them back to Valley Forge. By this time, the British had learned of the raiders. General Howe dispatched an army of 4,000 regulars and Hessians to dispatch Wayne's force and retake the herd of cattle. The British marched north of Philadelphia to use the ferry to Burlington, New Jersey. Further north, the Delaware was more narrow and easier to cross. From there, the British would sweep south and capture whatever American forces they found. Barry and Wayne tried to move the cattle back to the landing south of Wilmington, but they quickly realized that the barges were not suited to moving a herd of cattle. After holding a council of war on February 23rd, the officers decided on another course of action. Overnight, Barry took his barges and some of Wayne's soldiers upriver to the site of the old Fort Billingsport. This was just inside the area controlled by the British. The next morning, the raiders from Barry's fleet stopped at every farm near the coast and set fire to all of their hay. This was a tedious process, not only because of the dispersed farms, but also because the men had to speak with each angry farmer and write down their names and the amount of hay destroyed so that the Continentals could reimburse the farmer at a later date. 
This was per Washington's instructions not to engage in wanton destruction of property of civilians. The British in Philadelphia saw the plumes of smoke along the New Jersey coast. They halted their march to Burlington and crossed further south at Cooper's Ferry, just south of Philadelphia. The British also dispatched several ships to move downriver and intercept the enemy. Barry's men got a few hours of sleep that night, then continued their path of destruction the next day, setting fires as they continued to move south towards Salem. In all, they set fires along more than 30 miles of coastline. As the British followed the line of fires moving south, General Wayne and the remainder of his troops drove the herd of cattle and its wagons northward on an inland road. Over the same two days, they traveled to Burlington, New Jersey, and used the ferries there to move the herd into Pennsylvania. From there, they were able to drive the herd west toward Valley Forge to feed the starving army. Meanwhile, on the night of February 25th, a British warship finally caught up with Barry's barges. A nighttime chase ensued with Barry's crew in serious danger of capture. When two more ships appeared on the river, the British gave chase to those ships. It took a few hours for them to realize that those ships were also British. By the time they realized their mistake, Barry had reached the Delaware coast, hidden his boats, and the men had made their escape. The Navy realized that Barry had given them the slip. After a couple more days of searching, they returned to Philadelphia, finding nothing. The British Army, however, deployed to New Jersey and continued its search for the arsonists who were plundering and destroying the area farms. Among the British troops in New Jersey were three regiments of regulars under the command of Colonel Charles Mahood, who, you may recall, was the commanding officer at the Battle of Princeton more than a year earlier. With the regulars, there was a fourth regiment of loyalists known as the Queen's Rangers under the command of Major John Graves Simcoe. In total, Mahood had between 1,000 and 1,200 men under his command in New Jersey. However, Mahood divided his forces into smaller foraging parties, assuming that the enemy had dispersed. Now, as I said, Anthony Wayne had moved his cattle into Pennsylvania, but Wayne himself and most of his troops remained in Mount Holly, New Jersey, to manage the ongoing skirmishes with the British. Joining him were General Casimir Pulaski with 50 cavalrymen and 250 New Jersey militia under the command of Colonel Joseph Ellis, who was also sheriff of Gloucester County, New Jersey. With the British forces divided, Wayne took an opportunity to strike. On March 2nd, the Americans found Cooper's Ferry under the control of Major Simcoe and the Queen's Rangers. Cooper's Ferry led directly from New Jersey into Philadelphia from what is today Camden, close to where the Ben Franklin Bridge is today. The British were transporting cattle across the ferry into Philadelphia, but had set up a proper defensive line to guard against just such an attack. Wayne and Pulaski had a small number of troops with them. Wayne sent messengers to the militia to join them for the full attack. However, when it appeared that the remaining forces were about to board the ferry and get back to Philadelphia, Wayne opted to attack with the smaller force that was already there. The Americans opened fire on the British, leading to a sustained combat. The British had several small field pieces, which deterred the Americans from charging the position. 
However, the battle continued for some time. As it did, a larger contingent of British regulars moved up from the south toward the battle. When they attempted to cross a bridge over a small creek, they ran into about a hundred local militia under the command of Colonel Ellis. The militia managed to hold the regulars at bay and prevented them from reinforcing the defenders at Cooper's Ferry. The fighting continued until after dark. By that time, the defenders at Cooper's Ferry were able to get across the river to Philadelphia. Wayne and his men moved further north to Bordentown, New Jersey. He remained there for nearly two weeks, continuing to look for ways to harass the enemy. Finally, he received orders from Washington to return to Valley Forge. He crossed back into Pennsylvania the next day, taking his Continentals with him. While all this was happening, earlier I left Captain Barry in the Lower Delaware, having escaped the British in late February. Barry sent the infantry that General Wayne had detached to them to march back to Valley Forge. However, Barry and his sailors remained in the area, keeping a low profile. On March 7th, about two weeks after laying low, Barry spotted two British transports sailing upriver toward Philadelphia, with an armed schooner not far behind them. Barry and his men had seven small row barges. Using an island as cover, three of Barry's boats were on top of the smallest vessel, the Mermaid, before the enemy knew it. The men boarded the ship and took control without a shot fired. Captain Barry personally led the other four of his boats toward the larger ship, the Kitty. The British commander fired two four-pounder cannons at the attackers, but the shots missed the small boats entirely. Barry had cannons mounted to the bows of his barges and returned fire. The British captain quickly surrendered. Having captured both transports in less than 30 minutes, Barry next had to contend with the British warship that was sailing up on them. Rather than escape, Barry turned the two captured ships and his seven row barges toward the enemy and prepared to engage. The stunned captain of the enemy vessel, the Alert, struck his colors and surrendered. Barry had captured the small Navy ship with eight cannons, 12 howitzers, and a crew of 33. Now, the reason for the British captain's quick surrender was that the Alert was carrying the wives of three British officers who were going to meet their husbands in Philadelphia. The captain did not want to risk their lives in battle. Barry agreed to send the ladies to Philadelphia paroling two of the officers to escort them. Also aboard the captured ship were the papers of Hessian General von Neiphausen and the engineering tools belonging to British Colonel Montresor. Barry sent these prizes, along with a captured barrel of pickled oysters and a large wheel of cheese, to General Washington at Valley Forge with his compliments. Barry's fight was not over, though. The three ships that he had captured were the head of a larger convoy which included the 50-gun British warship, the Experiment, under the command of Sir James Wallace. Also, the 20-gun Brune, and two smaller warships, the Dispatch and the York. At the same time, another British vessel, the George, was sailing downriver and ready to engage the Americans in battle as well. Barry had about a day to send his prisoners ashore, along with the valuable cargo, to be sent back to Valley Forge the British squadron caught up with him on the morning of March 9th. Barry set on fire the two captured transports, still loaded with hay, 
but with their cannons sent ashore. He also towed his row galleys across the river to New Jersey so that his men could escape. The British ignored the row galleys and pursued the larger alert. Barry sailed upriver toward Philadelphia, trying to stay out of range of the enemy squadron. After several hours of chase, Barry realized that he was no match for the squadron that was on his tail. He pushed all of his cannons into the river and turned the alert towards Pennsylvania's shore. There, he grounded her and damaged her hull. He and his crew escaped into the Pennsylvania countryside and made their way back to Wilmington without a man lost. The naval battle on the Delaware River returned Barry to hero status. It also forced the British Navy to more heavily patrol the length of the Delaware River for the remainder of the Philadelphia occupation. At the same time the Navy was regaining the control of the Delaware River, the British Army remained active in the area of southern New Jersey, looking for rebels and foraging for food. As I said, Colonel Mahood took his four regiments down the Delaware River to attack the Patriot Militia, this time near Salem, New Jersey. He deployed Major Simcoe and the Queen's Rangers, along with a few companies of local Loyalist militia, about six miles north of Salem at around 3 a.m. on March 17th. Simcoe had orders to seize horses for his men and meet back up with the main force at Salem. The Patriot militia came out to meet the invaders. They formed a defensive line along Alloway Creek, about five miles inland from the Delaware River. Several hundred militia formed their defenses behind three bridges across the creek, Thompson's Bridge, Quinton's Bridge, and Hancock's Bridge. The British sent small parties to each bridge to keep an eye on the militia while the rest of the forces moved out in foraging parties. At Quinton's Bridge, the British found about 300 Patriot militia under the command of Colonel Asher Holmes, who were all behind entrenched defenses on the west bank of the creek overlooking the bridge. The Americans had also pulled the planks of the bridge, making a quick assault across the bridge impossible. A direct attack would require the British to make their way across the tiny bridge under devastating fire. Instead, Mahoud and Simcoe came up with another plan. The British marched a few companies of regulars within sight of the bridge to occupy the attention of the militia. At the same time, a company of the Queen's Rangers occupied a tavern on the western bank of the river. Several other companies of British hid in the woods near the bridge. The screening force then loudly withdrew and moved back toward the Delaware River. Seeing that, the militia replaced the planks in the bridge, and about 200 men under the command of Captain William Smith crossed over to pursue and harass the retreating regulars. The other 100 or so militia retained their defensive position. And once the Americans had crossed the bridge and were marching through the forest in pursuit of the enemy, the British revealed their ambush. An American officer on horseback had ridden ahead of the main force and discovered the enemy. Therefore, the British had to fire on him before the main American force was within range. The militia, hearing the fire, fell back to the bridge only to find the Queen's Rangers, who had hidden in the tavern, now blocking their path across the bridge. The men panicked and ran downstream, pursued by the British cavalry and infantry. Most of them managed to escape by swimming across the creek. 
the British had planned to cross the bridge and hit the remaining militia still on the other side. However, more Patriots' reinforcements arrived under the command of Colonel Elijah Hand, bringing with them two field cannons to defend the bridge. That was enough to get the British to call off an attempted assault across the bridge. Instead, they returned to Salem. The British confirmed only one enemy killed and that officer on horseback whom they wounded and captured. The Americans believed they had lost somewhere between 20 and 40 killed. It's thought that most of them drowned while trying to swim across the creek. The British reported only one of their own who suffered a mortal wound. As Colonel Mahood stared at his enemy still across that creek, he sent Major Simcoe downstream to Hancock's Bridge. They had received intelligence that another 300 militia were guarding that crossing. On March 21st, three days after the battle at Quinton's Bridge, Simcoe's force of about 300 attacked Hancock's Bridge. They began with a pre-dawn attack on the home of William Hancock, which was right next to the bridge. Simcoe believed that the American officers were sleeping in the house and ordered his men to break in and bayonet everyone, leaving no prisoners. His hope was to kill them before the rest of the militia could rally to a defense. As it turned out, though, the 20 or 30 militiamen who were sleeping in the house were the entire force that were located there. The militia had torn up the bridge the night before and left the area, aside from this small force. The British killed the sleeping soldiers and also a civilian, William Hancock, the owner of the house. He was a Quaker pacifist and a known loyalist. Simcoe had thought that Hancock had abandoned his house to the Patriots. In fact, Hancock had abandoned the house. However, he returned the night before and was put to the bayonet before he could identify himself. In truth, not all the sleeping Patriots were killed. Accounts list only eight or ten deaths, with the others wounded and taken prisoner. Later that day, after word of the massacre reached the Patriot defenders at Quinton's Bridge, Colonel Mahood sent a letter to them demanding that they withdraw and allow the British to continue their foraging unimpeded. If they did, the British promised to leave shortly and pay for the hay, corn, and cattle that they had taken. If the Americans refused to disperse, he would burn all of their homes and named a list of 27 known patriots whose homes he planned to start burning. The following day, Colonel Han responded, calling Mahood a barbarian and refusing to back off. As promised, Mahood continued his scavenging of the area over the next week and burned the homes of the 27 patriots on his list. After that, the British boarded their ships and returned to Philadelphia. Next week, I'm going to return to Valley Forge as the Continental Army finally welcomes the return of former prisoner of war, General Charles Lee. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options 
as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week, and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hi, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. I'm pleased to thank once again Trey Nance and George Davis for their ongoing support at the Alexander Hamilton Club level on Patreon. I'm also so happy to thank Lee Saham and George Hunter, who have both joined the Robert Morris Circle on Patreon. I really am grateful for everyone who has pledged continuing support to help cover the costs of this podcast. Thanks also to Tyler Brinson and Christopher Solberg, who both made generous one-time contributions to the podcast via Venmo. Those were a huge help this month. A reminder also that the American Revolution podcast is starting a mailing list. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, why on earth would I want to be on another mailing list? I already get each podcast delivered to my device each week. Well, the mailing list will give you extra information about each week's podcast, including a list of online information and relevant books in case you want to explore any of the topics further. I also plan to send out notices of live online events about the American Revolution. These are presentations often by authors or other experts on particular issues from the era. Uh, Many of them are American Revolution Roundtable, some are hosted by museums, but they're all really great events and I like to make people aware of them. There's usually a few events available each week. My plan is to send out one email each week covering the episode as well as other info on the other events for the week at the bottom of the email. There may be a second email during weeks when I release a second special episode midweek, but that's really about it. I don't plan to overload your inbox with crap. I find that annoying enough on the receiving end of many of the mailing lists that I'm on. Now, I say this is all my plan since I have not yet sent out the inaugural email to my list. So, if you want to be in from the beginning, there is still time. Also, if you could sign up before the end of the year, you will be eligible for one of two raffles. One is for a cool 1776 t-shirt provided by the History List with a quote from the Declaration of Independence on the back. You get to pick the size and color. The other prize is a 24-ounce tankard from Liberty & Co., with the famous Join or Die logo on it. I've added pictures of both prizes to my website and blog, as well as more details about both of them. The History List and Liberty & Co. are both offering discounts. You just need to use the special discount code that I have listed on my blog site for each company. Go to blog.amrevpodcast.com for more details. 
So, you know, it's the holiday season. If you're looking for gifts for the history fan in your life, or you're a history fan and people are asking for ideas to buy you gifts, these are both great sites to get some really cool history-themed stuff. And if you're listening to this shortly after release, yes, there is still time to order and get your stuff before Christmas. Now, this week I covered a series of skirmishes that took place in southern New Jersey during the winter of 1778. In many ways, the fighting around Philadelphia at this time was similar to the forage wars that the two sides fought in northern New Jersey a year earlier around British-occupied New York City. The difference in this case was that Philadelphia was not a coastal city. By causing trouble along the Delaware River, the Americans threatened British supply lines and communications. The Americans resorted to guerrilla-style tactics to keep the British annoyed and frustrated over the winter, a time when armies traditionally rested and rebuilt. It also led to some massacres, as I noted this week, which further turned local sentiment against the British. So it really was a classic guerrilla strategy. One of the leaders in the efforts to dispute British control of the Delaware River was Continental Navy Captain John Barry. His capture of several vessels, starting with basically large rowboats, was pretty impressive. Today, Barry is largely forgotten, other than the fact that there's a large statue of him right behind Independence Hall, and of course the Commodore Barry Bridge, which spans the Delaware River just south of Philadelphia, in the same area where Barry launched the attacks described in today's episode. If you want to read more about the man, Barry, well, there's a great biography of him that just happens to be this week's book recommendation. It's called John Barry, American Hero in the Age of Sail, by Tim McGrath. The book, which was first published in 2010, covers Barry's life, but of course focuses on his years in the Continental Navy, as well as his life as a ship's captain after the war. The author, McGrath, has also written a more general book about the early Navy called Give Me a Fast Ship, and this year he released a biography of President James Monroe, who was also an officer in the Continental Army during the war. I think the Barry biography was uh, McGrath's first major publication. It is a great read about someone that you've probably not read a whole lot about already. It's just over 500 pages, not counting notes and index, and I very much enjoyed it. For my online recommendation this week, I'm kind of going off menu to recommend a good, more general history website. It's thehistorylist.com. And no, I'm not just doing this because they were kind enough to donate a t-shirt for my raffle. The guy who runs the history list also founded History Camp, which I'm also become very involved in and am anxiously awaiting the return of once this silly pandemic subsides. The History List is a website that has a bunch of free video presentations, many of which are recorded, but they also have lists of live events as well. These are just really interesting videos on a wide variety of history topics, many of which involve the American Revolution, but many other eras as well. Uh, most of the live events that are listed there cover the greater Boston area, so if you live in that area, great. If not, though, many of them are online events, so anyone can participate from anywhere. And yes, they do have a gift shop where you can buy all sorts of history-themed items. And remember, if you do buy an item before the end of this year, 
Use the code AMREV2020 and you save $5 off any purchase of $20 or more. So, as I said, check out thehistorylist.com. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts.